Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker. Established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. And by Sheward and Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Social on Johnson Street in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with creative business consultant Aileen Bennett. It's business Acadiana style. Hi, I'm Aileen Bennett. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Here in southwest Louisiana, we are buffeted by elements and forces largely beyond our control. We don't have the luxury of debating whether climate change is man-made or a natural phenomenon. Whoever is causing it, man or nature, we have to live with the reality that changing weather is bringing 100 and 500 year storms far more frequently than centuries apart and eroding coasts are robbing us of the very land that some of us live on. Alongside that, the economies of our urban centres and small towns have been, for a long time, at the mercy of the vagaries of international oil prices. You might wonder what the heck these broad brush subjects have got to do with you, your house or your daily errands. We're about to find out. My lunch guests today are both involved with making the link between where we live and how we live. It's a link you might not normally think about, but it's fascinating and vital. Jeff Dyer is the CEO and Director of Design for the Downtown Development Authority in Lafayette. Jeff is an urban designer with an international reputation. He's designed more than 80 projects in 18 states across the US. He's both an enthusiast and an authority on downtown revitalization, which is what he specializes here in Lafayette. Jeff, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Ursula Emery McClure is a founding partner in the firm Emery McClure Architecture and occupies the prestigious seat of A. Hayes Town Professor in the School of Architecture at LSU. Ursula has won numerous international prizes for her architecture and her firm's work is internationally recognized as well. Here at home, Ursula's designs are sometimes controversial as she champions forward-thinking design while, as she puts it, being caught between the global petrochemical infrastructure and an alligator. Ursula, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jeff, this is a bit complicated, but I think I have it straight. There's an organization called Downtown Lafayette Unlimited, which is a private non-profit corporation formed in 1983 with the mission of revitalizing downtown Lafayette to restore and preserve its place as the center of economic and cultural life in Acadiana. This organization, Downtown Lafayette Unlimited, which has a board of governors of 20 people, works hand in hand with the Downtown Development Authority, which is the city organization dedicated to overseeing pretty much everything that goes on downtown. You've been part of the Downtown Development Authority for about four years, now as CEO and first as Director of Design. There's only so much that you can accomplish in four years, I appreciate that. But what might be the most salient point here is that we've apparently been revitalizing downtown since 1983. That's going on for 35 years. Don't you think if we were doing anything right, downtown Lafayette ought to be revitalized by now? Uh, wow, there's a lot there. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where to start with it. But let me start somewhere. 
So things have changed quite a bit since 1983. 1983 and really the 80s in general, the idea of living downtown was a foreign concept. Um, suburbanism was still very much the way to go and there were uh, really not even resources aimed at downtowns. And uh, decades before that, what we call white flight had occurred all over North America where we vacated our downtowns uh, for the suburbs and sort of left, uh, you call it, named our downtowns central business districts. And, uh, and that's where we would go to work during the day. And the folks who lived there, who had to live there and couldn't flee to the suburbs, uh, you know, they, they, uh, we, we lacked this, the, all the things that great cities, great downtowns now give us uh, were, were no longer there. The vibrancy, the convenience, the day-to-day the, uh, the -day services. So that was, uh, you know, decades in the making. And this happened all across the country, it wasn't all just Lafayette. North America, right. And actually one of the unique things that we have about our downtown is uh, we have done uh, a few things where we have a lot of, of, the, of ingredients that other downtowns have completely lost. So a lot of downtowns, you know, they have uh, uh, vacated parking lots that... Uh, uh, you know, are prime for redevelopment and have nothing going on. If you look at our downtown, we have a lot going on. We've got schools, we've got private schools, public schools, churches, uh, institutions, and and over 6,000 employees. So revitalization is just a consistent process. It can't ever stop or pause. Well, what's happened in the last 10, I'd say really 10 years, but I mean, this is this is happening right now, is there's been a shift in the market. And that market is, uh, it really affects a lot of different sectors. Uh, a lot of folks really look at the, the millennials as being uh, one of the, the new movers and shakers on the scene. And, and people make the mistake that all millennials want to do this thing or all millennials want to trade in their car for a phone. No more than any generation all thought the mm -hmm. same in the past. Why would they think the same now? Exactly. But the truth is that there's a large, significant percentage who have different preferences. And those preferences are now looking at wanting to live their day-to-day -day lives in a downtown environment. And so there's that shift. The other one that's happening, though, is the same folks who were part of that white flight, that uh, the, the boomers, um, they're all eyeing the inner city because they're now realizing the convenience that that offers and the fact that they no longer have to mow a yard. Mow so you're aiming everything to the, towards these yeah, millennials and boomers coming Correct. back. So those two are your primary markets. Those are probably, uh, it's kind of fascinating, isn't and it? And the boomers have always been a primary market, and they're a little bit upset right now that they're no longer the, you know, the, the king on the hill. The millennials are now starting to shift things, and so that's, you know, that's happening. Ursula, I love the quote that I attributed to you earlier, that when you're working in southwest Louisiana, you find yourself needing to think about your designs as being dictated by two opposing forces, which you describe beautifully as being caught between the global petrochemical infrastructure and analysis. That's an almost poetic description of our economic and business life here. We're caught between the forces of the international economy and nature. But we're not just victims of those forces, we're also the beneficiaries of them. The oil economy has pumped billions of dollars into Acadiana, and much of our lateral landscape is unparalleled in its pristine beauty. When you start work on a commercial project like a museum or a school or a residential project, someone's house, how much of every project is its own unique thing and how much are we all connected? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is that understanding your context is relevant to any scale project. And so context is not always understood by everyone because people tend to be black or white and not occupy the gray. And so the gray is very much a Louisiana condition. These industrial uh, thriving ecosystems 
these ecosystems produce lots of things that lots of people want, and they're often in opposition to each other. And so every project is really kind of that negotiation of context, and that's what makes it unique, because everyone brings their own context to an existing context. And so that marriage or merge is, I think, the responsibility of the designer for them, is that they're not just respecting the context of the immediate user, but the context that that immediate user is then going to be participating. Yeah, so there's context within context within Correct. context. It's like a little babushka doll that you just have to keep. You gotta always know where the big babushka doll is for the little babushka doll. And it's important that the user understands their relevance in that. And, and that's, that's and Jeff, connected. you normally deal with the big babushka doll and right. then the little ones. Well, yeah, <laughs> you're on kind right. of opposite ends of the scale. Jeff, I understand at some point, most of us as work, I know some are renovations, but you end up, you start where there's no house and you build a house. That seems fairly logical to me. How do you do, how do you plan a town that's already there? How, like, downtown already exists. How do you then plan it? Because it's, you can't knock it down and start again. So how do you deal with the existing things that you've got and make it into what you want? Well, and therein lies the answer to your original question was why does it take so long? You're looking at a downtown that has uh, uh, extremely old infrastructure. You have a lot of different property owners. You have a lot of different conditions of streets. Yeah, because you just don't get to say, let's do this. You don't mm-hmm. own most of those mm-hmm. buildings. You don't have access to them. In fact, the easy stuff is on the edge of town where you get one developer, one big piece of, of land. It's relatively cheap. We throw a lot of money in infrastructure And how do you it. persuade them to be part of your plan as well as their own plan? Well, part of it is, again, you know, there is a willing market that wants to be be downtown, and we have to help create the conditions where they would want to, want to be there. And there's many things that have to be done. Uh, so as a develop, redevelopment authority, we look at land that could, uh, that is a city-owned, that could be repurposed. Uh, old Federal Courthouse is, is, a, is a perfect example of city-owned land that could be a catalyst for future redevelopment. The other issue is nobody really wants to be the guinea pig. They, want, they don't want to be the first one out of the chute. And when I say that, I mean that we need a significant redevelopment project that, that creates a comparable so that other, other developers can start to quantify and look at how they would actually be able to uh, profit from doing a development in the downtown. And I think so, that's a key term, profit. It is. It is. It is. We, it, it, redevelopment, when downtown started, um, real estate in North America is a profit-driven enterprise. But it, that also means that it's market-driven. And that's where we can play to our strengths, is that if we can meet the needs of a market for, for our development industry and they make a profit, we will start to see revitalization. The only piece missing from what I just said is to have the actual vision so that the things that do get built uh, add up to a great downtown rather than being individual projects. And your job is to provide that vision. Correct, is to sort of provide the glue. So we have a lot, we, there's a lot of things uh, that we need to do um, primary, you know, the way we were really set up was to drive capital improvements. In other words, new streets, streetscapes, Jefferson Street, uh, the parks, parking garages. So the things that we can do as a public entity. So you build the bits you can and mm-hmm. hope people buy into the vision and add on to Correct. that. Correct. Um, yeah. Ursula. Yes. In the research I've got about you, there's this quote about your style. And it used to be that we knew architects for one particular style. But you say that doesn't apply anymore and that style is contextual. Can you explain that to us? Well, I think that the, the issue with style is that style is an appropriation and it is a sort of dictated version of something that then becomes popularized. But once something becomes popular, it also means it goes away. And so then you have this sort of 
things that don't work anymore because they were of a certain style. And speaking towards exactly what we're talking about here about contextualization is that if you participate in a way with this greater context, the style becomes the culture and then the culture persists. And so here where we talk, think about culture and the persistence of culture and how now we have young people who want to play the music from the old, but they don't play it the same way that the old way it was played. They transform it and they bring themselves into it, but yet it's still contextual because it comes from some kind of background. And so and in the end, that culture, I guess, could be a style, but it's always evolving. It's in constant revitalization, is what yes. we say, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it keeps it's, going. Right. We keep coming back to the same thing, exactly. which is kind of beautiful. Can I, can I speak to that a little bit? Of course you may. Because I think uh, there's some interesting things in here. Now, now I, admittedly, uh, uh, Ursula and I, our worlds really haven't uh, overlapped too much, so we're um, I have just a have met each will other. in the future. Um, I do live downtown. Well, there you go. So they, <laughs> they should more often, right? But... Um, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, and, and, you know, early on when I started in my position, um, we, we were talking about things like you know, like style and what, what is the character of, of construction should happen in the downtown. And so we're really on that. Right now, I've got so many other things that are more more um, immediate needs than, than worrying about what the buildings look like, but is one of my favorite interests. So I'll find that uh, I, I see it as a sign of success when I get back to it. Um, but having said that, um, I've noticed that you know culture in this town is pretty important. And when we look at when we look at pretty, pretty important. when we look at our cuisine and our music, one of the things is I totally agree that we, um, you know, that our musicians and our chefs are able to uh, both. Uh, uh, you know, create, use what we did in the, how we did things in the past and do them in a very modern way and add their own touch and their own um, uh, feeling to it. But at the same time, they're also afforded the ability to actually replicate it directly. And one of the things that I've, I've been challenged with um, with the architecture is that uh, I don't agree necessarily with replication of the past, um, but there is a uh, sense in the architectural community, particularly in the academ academia, that uh, there are certain uh, things out of the past that are off limits. And there's this idea of this contemporary, moder um, uh, I'll call it modernism, that was really born out of the 1930s, which therefore is also a traditional style or traditional approach to um, architecture. And that somehow we, you know, in that realm, we, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're not allowed to do a whole bunch of things and it has to come from the, the, the modernist tradition. And so, uh, you know, I struggle with looking at the, the, some of the, so the fake traditionalism that you see out there, uh, and, or poorly done traditionalism, because a market may want it and it's just not done in a, in a contemporary way. And then modernist uh, uh, architecture that doesn't reflect our culture and is more of the international style. And I think it's important to reflect our culture one way or the other in our architecture. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Aileen Bennett. I'm talking with Jeff Dyer from the Lafayette Downtown Development Authority, an architect and professor of architecture, Ursula Emery McClure. Ursula, we've been talking about buildings because it's, it's natural to go there with an architecture and a planner, but both of your industries are not actually concerned just with buildings and objects, but the, the human interface with them. How much of your time do you spend thinking of that, that people element of buildings rather than the buildings? Well, I mean, a lot of the work that we do, especially here in Lafayette, is with residential uh, clients who have uh, old homes, like 
110-year-old Acadian houses or 1970s houses. And because contemporary life has changed, these things have to be sort of changed for contemporary life. And so that person, that user, is the driver of all the decisions, which is why there's no style. Because if there was style, I would be saying, you have to live your life the way I think you should live your life, not the way you need to live your life. And then that feeds out into the greater fabric, which is this sort of how do you want to see your world every day? Do you want to see, and this will go to the planner here, power lines down Johnson Street? Like really, yeah. does that, is that an attractive thing that you want to be part of your daily life where you drive to work and you take your kids to school? And so that user is a critical, because in the end, if they don't appreciate not having power lines or having trees down the middle of a street yeah. or having wide enough sidewalks to gather downtown, then you're not going to have those things happen. You're in a people-based industry. We talk Completely. about buildings a lot, but it really is. It's very similar to other industries in that people, you're a service industry for people. Correct. Absolutely. Always. And I, and I could probably answer that in, in two parts. One, uh, uh, responding to, to Ursula and this idea of the, yeah, we have some ugly spots in our town. You know, for a town that's so so uh, focused on culture and people love us, people love to move here and they love love who we are. But um, you know, but we do have these ugly streets with big power lines, and and you know, we, we people ask us, well, why can't why can't you bury them? Why can't you fix them? And I think one of the things we've 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 struggled with in this town is understanding trade-offs. There's only so much uh, funding out there that is available. Um, we're in a time where it's extremely uh, controversial to raise taxes, so we really have a very uh, uh, distinct uh, amount of money and we have some serious problems. We were dealing with uh, drainage issues. I'm dealing right now with drainage issues in the downtown. You know a lot of folks probably don't uh, realize this but in mid-October uh, we had some flooding in our downtown and that's an immediate issue and so uh, when you look at the limited funding you have to start deciding what what are your trade-offs? What are the things that we can spend money on and solve right now? What are the things that we, we can try to get funding to do? And what are the things we're just going to have to put off for, for, for you know, down the And down that the you have in common with a lot of other businesses working out, you know, where your priorities lay and then Correct. putting out fires. And it's on us to communicate what those, what that, yes. those trade-offs. And again, I don't think we're very good at, at doing that in the community. People see these problems and are wondering why they're not getting solved. And we need to communicate what those trade-offs are. Ursula Jeff, this is a part of the show that we call Another Great Idea. Maybe you've got a friend like this, someone who always has that great idea for you. Or they tell you about this job you should apply for, or the guy you should have a cup of coffee with, or a great investment opportunity that you should jump on now. You can take advice like this and it turns out to be a disaster. You can dismiss this advice and miss out on something that might have turned out really great. Or you can take your friend's advice and, turn, and it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Do you have an example in your life or career of a friend who had a great idea for you? Did you take their advice? How did it turn out? Two sort of pieces of advice, which are not specific to a certain event, but more to a way of being, which I think is important when you think about we're in a service industry for people. And so the first is that I had parents who really cultivated the skateboarder, no fear uh, mentality in their own ways. And I wasn't even going to say the expression of my father, but it might be a little too harsh for radio. But there was this idea that you cannot have fear to try the things that you want, but that means that you are going to fall off the skateboard a lot and you have to be okay with that kind of failure that comes with having no fear, which is more than success often. So there's that, which I definitely think, I mean, I wouldn't be probably in Louisiana if I had fear because why would I have packed up and moved to a state that I had no relationship with 
you know, I, I agree. 17 <laughs> years ago. Like, yes. I, you know what I mean? If I had some fear. And then the second one is the more recent advice, which I was wanted to bring up because I'm not really good at taking it, but I know that I should take it, which is that my partner keeps reminding me to wait 30 seconds before I speak, to think about the response to a question so that you make sure you're actually hearing what you're being asked. And I think that's really critical. It's in some ways oppositional to the no fear, I'm just gonna jump off the cliff. But at the same time, it is a really incredible, the, the 30 seconds changes so much. It calms you down if you're wanting to uh, uh, respond, you know, in a, a way that is sort of aggressive or it also then at the same time makes you very reflective and it makes the person that you're speaking with or the group that you're speaking with understand that you're hearing them yes. when they express something to you, which so many times the users, as you're saying, if they can let you hear what their complaints are, you're going to be able to respond better. So, Although I'm really pleased you didn't take 30 seconds pause between answering no. each question today, because that would have made no, that really would have a lot strange of your time. radios. <laughs> it's called dead air. Yes. Dead air, right. <laughs> but it's, it, it's still good advice. It is great yeah. advice, and yeah. I'm working hard to take it. Uh, as you know, I, I didn't start off as a CEO. Um, I kind of uh, was ushered into the role as an interim position, and they went on a CEO ser search earlier this year. And I did have some advice to uh, run for the hills. And and uh, um, did you have advice? Go for it and run. Did you have both uh, of those pieces? Probably of advice? more run for the hills, but um, but. Uh, the truth is, though, there were a, a lot of folks that I've been working with over the, the last several years who were actually uh, coming into my office telling me that, you know, you, that I should, I, encouraging me to take on this, uh, what has turned out to be a very challenging but rewarding uh, role. And so um, it certainly was a, uh, a difficult decision, and I don't like to do things halfway. You know, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to engage with the issues and, and fix things as best as I can and make it happen. And I know that that's a sacrifice for uh, my family and everyone else to, you know, to do something like that. But uh, so uh, as you can see, I did not take the advice to run for the hills and I did take the advice to stay and, and take this thing on. And we are pleased. So. Let me ask this, as a business consultant, I walk into a business and I can't but help but watch the way it runs. When you guys walk into a place, Ursula, do you look at the architecture and look at the way it's designed and change it around in your head? And Jeff, do you look at the patterns where people walk and look at it with that town planner attitude? Do you do that all the time I guess I mean for our professions we're it's our responsibility to be attentive to what the visual world looks like be that infrastructure interior working methods are what I would call systems so I can't you can't help I don't know if I'm always correcting them but I definitely am observing them because they're lessons that I can then utilize. And so it becomes hyper-observant, like you become a hyper-observant person. So often you find yourself listening to conversations that aren't yours, really paying attention. Like you can see when a waitress, like when the staff's going down in the kitchen, like you can tell because you're just used to seeing how people move through space. So, yes. For me, I, uh, I look at uh, a, a city's growth, I, I call it uh, development energy. There's a certain amount of development energy that happens in your in your town. There's so many apartments that get built and office buildings. And, and there's and natural roads. growth versus kind of planned growth and yeah, how they coincide. But, but regardless of where it goes and how it, how it happens, there's a certain amount of it that's going to happen year to year. You know, over the next 10 or 20 years, if we could transform this city into to embody the kind of culture and, and, and you know the, the things we already have, the things that people already already love. Um, I mean, we that would pay dividends well into the future. And so it's not just about a little thing here and there. It's, it's about it's about taking that development energy 
and channeling it to places where it is building a real a real city and not sort of what everybody else is doing. One thing I'm always fascinated by, because I come across this on a daily basis, what is the little thing that happens that reminds you of why you do what you do? Is there a moment, is it when you finish a house, when you start a project? Where, where are those moments, or is it seeing people live in an environment that you created? What is that little thing that reminds you why you do what you do? Oh, ah, I don't, that's a tough one for me. I guess, I mean, I'm so constantly enmeshed in conversations of critiquing design because I teach yes. and then I work and then I go to job sites and have conversations with contractors or arguments. So it's obviously... They're the same thing with contractors. They're right. And so there's a constant... I don't even know what it means to be reminded because I don't think I'm ever not in it. So it's, you know, I think the other day I had a moment with Lafayette High School, which when you watch those like 2,000 kids pour out at the end of the day. And it's kind of amazing to watch how they negotiate to cross the street. And, and, and there's so many of them. And it's in fact the most orderly thing you've ever seen. And you just can't imagine at a high school that that's how it would happen. And so like I saw that the other day and I was just like, that is remarkable. Because you know, crossing moments. Congress mm. is not easy. And all of a sudden 2,000 kids just pour out of a building. I just found it fascinating. No matter where you live in the world, you need to find a way to live in harmony with your surroundings. Here in southwest Louisiana, that comes with its own challenges, from more frequent flooding to disappearing wetlands. And as we transition from an oil-based workforce to a diversified economy with a trend towards tech, we continue to change. The urban environment and the very buildings we live and work in are both central to our growth and vital to our existence. None of these buildings or urban environments drop out of the sky. We design them, we build them, we or nature destroy them, we rebuild them. Ursula and Jeff, as two of the people contributing to this cycle that we're all a part of, thank you for everything you're doing. And thank you both for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Ursula Emery McClure, the A. Hayes Town Professor of Architecture at LSU and founding partner of Emery McClure Architecture and Jeff Dyer, CEO and Director of Design at the Downtown Development Authority in Lafayette. You can find out more about Ursula's architecture and Jeff's activities downtown by following the links on our websites, krvs.org and itsacadiana.com. Today's show is recorded live over lunch at Social Southern Table and Bar in Lafayette. Social is open six days a week for lunch and dinner with brunch on Sundays. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Morrell. Our researcher is Anne Christian. Our theme song, Onkua Mission Ice Guy, is written by Mitch Foreman and performed by Mitch Foreman and Andre Michaud. Our Acadiana business consultants are Pete Prados from Innovate Acadiana, Zach Barker from The Opportunity Machine, and Dr. Blake Eskiday. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website, itsacadiana.com, and on our It's Acadiana Facebook page. You can get this show and past shows as a podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our website, itsacadiana.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRVS 88.7 FM. I'm Aileen Bennett. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker. 
established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, JonesWalker.com. And by Wyndham Garden Lafayette. And by Sheward & Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas.